Welcome to Putting It Together. This is the podcast where we go through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song. My name is Kyle Marshall, self-proclaimed Sondheim aficionado, and I am really excited to share with you this episode this week. It turned into one of my absolute favorite conversations we've ever had on the show. My guest this week is Darby Turnbull, who is an actor in Melbourne, Australia. He contacted me through the Gmail account that we have hooked up for the show, which is putting it together podcast at gmail.com, and thus began an epic journey of trying to make our schedules match up. It was tough, and we finally figured it out. But because of the huge time difference, what this actually meant is that this episode was recorded at about 1.30 in the morning, my time. So let me just give you a bit of a rundown on how that worked. I, of course, was a terrible planner, and I stayed up until about 11 p.m. the night before, went to bed, crashed for like two hours, got up, immediately fell back to sleep again, woke up randomly and saw that I had about 15 minutes to prepare. So jumped up, got my Blue Yeti mic, plugged it into my laptop computer that I had brought home, I had intended to actually drive down to the studio. I was like, I, just, I don't have time. So I'm just going to try and make this work. So I'm recording on my Blue Yeti. We got together through Skype and we had this conversation. Me filled with adrenaline at 1.30 in the morning and Darby being wise and just filled with really great tidbits and information that I think adds a lot to our conversation. So thank you so much to him. I should say just so that you don't think this somehow is an oversight on my part because of the connection. I mean, it is thousands of kilometers away that we were trying to connect with Darby's microphone has a little bit of noise attached to it. Again, nothing that I think really ruins the conversation, but you will notice a little bit of rustling uh, throughout when he's talking. But again, I think that it's not enough to be like, oh, this is awful audio. It's just something that you'll probably notice while he's talking. I should also point out that I actually finally had the opportunity to watch the Imelda Staunton version of Gypsy. I had not seen that before we had this conversation with Darby, but I have since seen it. I actually broke down and finally got a subscription to Broadway World HD. Is it Broadway World HD or is it just Broadway World? Whichever one lets you pay them money so that you can watch Broadway shows that have been recorded for you. And I loved it. It was a really great interpretation. And I think that Amelda specifically has a really interesting take on the Rose character in particular. It's like this simmering rage that she has throughout the entire show that just wasn't there necessarily with any of the other performances that I've seen. So it was this really interesting take on on a character. And I think adds to this conversation that we've been having over these multiple episodes where it feels to me that every actress who takes on the role of Mama Rose brings something new and different to that role. So it's, it's always something interesting and, and eye-opening the way that every performer can do a little bit of a different take. I also feel a little bit bad because I waited so long to actually watch this show that because I was just relying on memory of the performances of Gypsy I've seen in the past that there are little things that happen in the actual play portion, the book portion of the musical that I kind of forgotten about. But you know what? Before we go any further, I need to tell you that Putting It Together is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. They promote and support Alberta-made podcasts and connect their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. They also happen to be a sponsor this week, so I'd love to highlight a specific show for you. 
So on this podcast, we're going through Stephen Sondheim's shows song by song, but what about that same thing except with books and going chapter by chapter? That's exactly what the read-along is all about. It's a mini book club for your ears. Join Scott and Anita Bourgeois on a chapter-by-chapter journey through a good book. Who knows? Maybe they'll eventually get to something that was adapted into a Broadway show and then they can invite me on. Hint, hint. Anyway, you can find it and all the great shows at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Our second sponsor is Let's Do Coffee. This is another podcast. It's presented by the Maji Center for New Venture and Student Entrepreneurship. You can tune into Let's Do Coffee, where they interview local entrepreneurs, either student or alumni, about their ventures into entrepreneurship. On the most recent episode, they brought on Sylvia Chevrolet from Chartier, a French-Canadian cuisine spot located right in the center of Beaumont, Alberta. Sylvia shares her experiences, thoughts, and history around how Chartier got started. I assure you, it's better than my attempt at French. You can find Let's Do Coffee by going to letsdocoffee.libsyn.com or by following the link that I'll provide in the show notes. The one last thing I'll say about Darby, just with his seeming huge wealth of knowledge about performance and especially like this era of Broadway, I would really love to see him perform someday. So if I ever get to Australia, by hook or by crook, probably by convincing some devilishly handsome man to take me on a cruise, then my first stop is to try and go and see him on stage. But Darby and I referenced quite a few things this episode, so luckily most of it is on YouTube. I'll leave a link to those resources also in the show notes. Thanks to all our sponsors. Truly, take a look at the show notes. Boy, I'm sounding like a broken record this week. But take a look at those show notes for information about the music we're referencing and how to get your own book of Sondheim lyrics. Let's listen to the original Broadway cast recording of If Mama Was Married, and then we'll go to my conversation with Darby Turnbull. All right, Darby Turnbull, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, yeah, I'm thrilled. (laughs) Uh, We are doing a very kind of long-distance call here today. So you're over in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I would love it, though, if you could maybe tell a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So um, right now, my sort of first love is working in community mental health. I am part of the lived experience um, advocacy team. So I am someone who has a lived experience of mental health issues and distress uh, and recovery. So part of my role is I support people in their own recovery using that lived experience. So I'm not a therapist, but I'm more of a, uh, but it is a therapeutic relationship. So what I do is, you know, I meet with them. Sessions are often quite intense. We work through sort of whatever it is they want to work through. Uh, A lot of my job entails sort of like demystifying the whole experience and working on, you know, things like stigma, you know, definitely recovery. And, and I suppose my sort of night job is I do a lot of uh, theatre, you know, here in Melbourne, you know, both community theatre and independence. Yeah, as of last year, I sort of branched out into audio drama. Uh, so it, it certainly keeps me busy. I guess, uh, if you don't mind me asking, how did you find yourself in that line of, of help? Like, how did you find yourself in, 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 in helping people with mental health? 
Uh, well, you know, it was really, I sort of fell into it by accident, actually. I, um, I saw, I didn't even know it existed. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, the lived experience workforce actually exists. I mean, I certainly didn't know when I was in treatment. But the story I always tend to go back to is I saw an incredible theatre piece by a performance maker called um, Bryony Kimmings. And uh, she did a piece with her then partner about his experiences with depression and anxiety. And then it turned into this, there was a wonderful, wonderful Q&A session afterwards. And there was a representative from uh, Beyond Blue, which is a mental health service uh, here in Melbourne. And he was talking about peer support and I had no idea that it existed. And I was like, well, people can do this. So it was sort of an opportunity to sort of recontextualize uh, what these experiences sort of are. And it's, you know, I certainly find it empowering to be able to sort of, you know, bring my, you know, often very distressing experiences into a space and using them to sort of provide uh, context or insight to other things that other people may be experiencing. So it's it's kind of nice to go in there without without an agenda to just go as sort of like as equal as possible, I suppose. What is your history with Stephen Sondheim then? Uh, okay, so Stephen Sondheim for me is, I suppose how other people talk about the Smiths. I mean, um, I think we probably have this in common, <laughs> right. but you know, I... I was that I was that kid from about 15 years old when like I really started to sort of connect with Sondheim. You know, uh, it was incredible. Like you know, I've been listening to songs like you know, Send in the Clowns or you know, Anyone Can Whistle and you know, dozens and dozens of others. And I was like, oh my god, this is me. I'm feeling it. You know, I, and you know, even you know, all these years later, you know, probably a decade of really loving Sondheim. I really feel like you know, for he's almost like Shakespeare in that in that sense. You know. Uh, for every human emotion, he's probably written a song about it. Or, and I think so many different people can connect with him on different ways, in different ways. So, yeah, I mean, my experience with Sondheim is I've never done a Sondheim show. I tend to move towards straight theatre if such a thing exists. But I've I have done a few of his songs, like you know, in cabaret settings. So I've never approached a Sondheim character. I hope to though. Um, I sort of see his shows whenever they're in town, uh, if I can. There's actually a Sondheim repertory company here in Australia. So that's oh, really? pretty, yeah, it's pretty incredible, actually. They're a professional company um, who they dedicate themselves solely to Sondheim. So, you know, every year or 18 months, they'll do a different show. And they're wonderful, actually. I'm really excited. They're doing um, Sunday in the Park with George this year. Uh, so I'm really excited to finally see that live. It's actually one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I, I, I hope that Sondheim is not as problematic as what Morrissey turned out to be. <laughs> Quite so. Um, I think he's, you know, I think he's got his own stuff and his own issues. But, you know, what I yeah. really admire about him, I was reading an interview regarding, you know, this new production of Company that's, you know, happening is he seems really open to learning. I mean, he sat down with Mary and Ellie and says, look, you know what, I'm an old guy. I've got to learn. I need you to sort of teach me things. And I think that's actually really great. I found that really encouraging because, yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, from what I know about him, he just seems like a really cool, humble, humble guy. I mean, I, you know, whenever I watch, you know, or listen to interviews with artists, I'm always sort of put off, you know, sort of by their general demeanor. And he's sort of unlike anyone else I've ever really come across. He just seems to be purely about the work. Of course, I could be completely wrong. And, you know, he might be a total jerk for all I know, but Maybe. Nothing, no, nothing's come out as yet. <laughs> You mentioned something that I'm very curious of now. I know you said you've not inhabited a, a Sondheim character yet, but if you could pick a character that you would like to try and tackle, who would it be? Probably Joanne from Company. I, I, I tend to sort of, you know, really uh, connect to the female role sort of more than anything else. But yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah, Joanne is probably one which probably would lend itself to a non-binary performer. However, 
Yeah. Oh God, it's it's so hard. There are so many. I, I would love to play um, Charlie in um, Merrily We Roll Along. I mean, I've done Franklin right. Shepard Inc. before, and I really love that song. And I sort of love his backwards arc. God, there are, there are a few actually. Again, Mama Rose would be would be incredible. <laughs> But, you know, if I was ever to do Gypsy, I would love to play one of the strippers. Um, nice. All right. They are just marvelous, marvelous women, and I love them dearly. But, yeah, oh, God, I'll, I'll keep that in the back of my mind, actually, because, I, you know, I used to have a really long list, but I think I'm getting a little bit more realistic about what my casting prospects are. No, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I, to, to turn it more towards, I guess, the show at hand, what is your history with Gypsy? Gypsy, well, I've seen it twice, you know, live. The first time was uh, a professional production with Caroline O'Connor. I'm not sure if you know her. She has quite a good career in, in America. Uh, she was in the recent production of Anastasia, I believe. And okay. um, she was she was also the featured tango dancer in Moulin Rouge. But over here in Australia, she's sort of like the grand dame of musical theatre. You know, she is mm. basically our Ethel Merman. And she's actually played Ethel Merman in her biopic on Cole Porter. So um, she has that voice like a trumpet. So seeing her as Rose was sort of an event. And the second one was a community theatre production, actually, but it was of a sort of very professional standard. I love them both equally because they were so different. But the Caroline O'Connor version, that was very much Rose's show. However, what I really loved about this production was it gave due perspective to Louise's character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of left going, oh, wow, this is Louise's show. And, you know, it was, it was a testament to sort of the, the strength of the cast as an ensemble that I sort of left feeling because, you know, the show is called Gypsy. You know, she sort of tends to get lost in her own show sometimes because, yeah, you know, yeah. this sort of titan that is Mama Rose. I think it's a show that I'm going to keep coming back to because, you know, it's. Um, I recently watched uh, the, the film's production from the recent revival in London with Melda Staunton, which just right. blew my socks off. I mean, for me right now, I was like, you know, that is as pretty close to perfect as I think that character can be played. But, you know, it's, um, it's a show that I'll keep seeing because I think it lends itself to so many different interpretations and it's a chance for, you know, every actor in the company to really show what they can do. I mean, I, I know it's this, you know, massively, massively coveted, you know, role, but, I, but, you know, especially, you know, when we go into talking about this song, it's filled with these really beautiful, beautiful characters. And I, yeah, I just love it. I think it's, again, I think it's as close to perfect as a musical can be. I know it's been described as such, but oh my God, it just, everything fits together together so beautifully i just yeah i could nerd out about this for hours don't let me Um, no i I think it's really interesting though i mean that's the the recurring thing i think that keeps coming up in some of these conversations i have as much as this show is redone and revived seemingly like every couple of years there is a fresh take that seems to be able to be done every time which you would think that they would have run out of takes at this point the the other thing i think that you're calling out that i don't think anyone has been able to verbalize yet is i think you're right in that there it is very easy for louise to be overshadowed by all these other characters and the sheer force uh, sorry the sheer force of the mama rose character can sometimes just bowl over Louise, which is ostensibly her show, or it's supposed to be. I mean, it's named after her. Yeah. So there's that kind of uh, balancing act that needs to happen. Absolutely. I mean, and I think the show wouldn't work if the actress playing Louise wasn't as strong as the actress playing Mama Rose. And 
that's what sort of what I that's sort of what I took took from like the first production that I saw of it because I'd only ever heard the you know several cast recordings, so you know I didn't get those really juicy Louise moments, you know, because she really comes to life in like the book scenes, I believe. Um, yeah, which is sort of almost unusual for a musical. You know, you'd think that she would have this like incredible aria or something in the second act where she talks about you know how she's feeling or you know what her life is like, and it's so interesting in the score is she doesn't really have that. You know, she has obviously you know Little Lamb, which is you know really steeped mm-hmm. in this metaphor, and you've also got this number and you know she's got let me entertain you later on and it's so interesting and i'm really into exploring right now why certain characters sing in a musical and like what choices they make dramaturgically because you know really i mean obviously in a musical you sort of expect a song to sort of advance the plot and advance the character but i think what gypsy does and i think this is really down it's um arthur lawrence isn't it who wrote the book yes yeah arthur lawrence yeah yeah Oh God, yeah, I was about to embarrass myself. But what he does is the book is so strong and it moves things along so beautifully and so economically, I believe, that you almost don't need it because, you know, you've got this, you know, um, when we get into, you know, if mama were married, I mean, I think the scene that precedes it is so rich and so just brimming in subtext and history and like you know the relationship that exists between these between all these characters between herbie and rose and like june Mm -hmm. and louise and you know the newsboys later on and you know it's the same you know much much later on you know in the show you know like um louise has that beautiful monologue that she gives you know to her mother in her dressing room where she you know she goes you know what fuck it i'm having a good time with my life and you know if i this is what's happening for me right now and i kind of want you out in a way so yeah I think, you know, if the libretto isn't good, the show can quite possibly fall apart. And this libretto is one of the best out there. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting because you're you're so right. I mean, this is described as like the best book musical of all time. Mm. I, I, I've used that phrase a few different times to the degree that the songs, as great as they are, are kind of like these little punctuation marks that happen to a script that is already really, really good. So I think you're right. If you were just to look at songs and like, who gets to sing them and and where they happen in the show you you can kind of notice some weird themes and like question like well why why are these characters chosen to sing over other ones like uh, you could kind of say the same thing about uh, june Mm. this is this is june's really only song really other than the uh let me or may we entertain you bits and like the the newsboys and stuff like that like so outside of like the vaudeville type of performances this is the only other song that june gets to sing like they give tulsa this side character an entire song which happens next yeah i have to say i've never okay if there's one thing about the show that i don't get i don't get it i don't get tulsa (laughs) (laughs) tulsa as a character or just why they give him a song a bit of both, actually, because I know, like, actual June Hovick sort of took extreme umbrage to the portrayal mm. of the show that she, I think she described it, I don't see it like this, by the way, but, like, she sort of thought, oh, wow, they're going to think that I just stole my sister's, like, boyfriend or potential boyfriend oh, right. or something, which, you know, she doesn't. You know, I'm actually really looking forward to hearing what, you know, your next guest says about All I Need is the Girl, because, like, I, I don't get it, and it's sort of for me the part of the evening where i sort of go this is a fabulous song but i don't connect to it in a way that i would like i would like to you'll have to wait until 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 next episode i Uh, will the the last thing i'll just say too is i keep bringing this this point up but i still do think it's kind of odd the way that the songs are structured in in the two acts it's like very very act one heavy there's a ton of songs in it and then when act two comes out it just has like i forget i think i counted once i think there's four four or five at the very most uh songs that happen so it does have to get by on the strength of 
the the book bits or the libretto bits. So, well, I do actually have a theory about that. If you're oh, I'm I'm open to it. it. Yeah, well, because I believe like the songs in this are sort of more sort of emotionally charged mm-hmm. than plot charged. I think. I think, or at least what I take from it, is by the beginning of Act 2 comes around, Rose is losing her power. You know, she's right. really kind of at the end of her rope here, at the rope here. I mean, I think she's lost, you know, she's lost June, basically. You know, she's trying to build this this new act out mm-hmm. of, like, the embers of the old act, and, and it's just not working. And I think what I sort of take from it is, I think that is when she's becoming more and more emotionally on, like, Herbie and Louise, because, you know, they've got, you know, together wherever we go. And then we don't really hear her sing again until, you know, Rose's turn, which is, like, you know, this huge, mm-hmm. huge outburst of pent-up emotion that she's, you know, been building to, like, her whole life or the whole, you know, her, her whole life, you know, the whole evening for us. So that's sort of my half theory is that, you know, I don't know if they just, you know, if it was just, like, economy or time or something, but I do think there is something, you know, if I was doing this production, if I was directing this production, that is definitely a question I'd be asking for Rose. Is like, you know, why is, why doesn't she have, a, like, a big song in the middle of Because I know um, Smile Girls was cut. Right, exactly. Because, you know, they were like, oh, no, she, she must have a mid-act two number. And like, then they went, no, nah, bugger it, just yeah. let it keep going yeah. as it is. But also, you know, when you've got a number like you've got to have a gimmick. I mean, you know. Um, yeah, it's hard to pass just, that up. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, everything else is just like, you know, doesn't doesn't matter. I think, you know, I and that, I, I think that takes a lot of courage as well to sort of, you know, in a musical, just let let the story take over and let the story lead you to where it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's another thought that just jumps to mind here too. Uh, like just going back to L- L- Louise character specifically, you, like you meet her with her being like super meek and mild as a young girl when we when the show first opens, and we we need to build to the let me entertain you moment during her strip mm-hmm. uh, at at the very end, and then in between that, of course, we see the the vaudeville stops. And then we have this song that kind of comes somewhat in the middle of those those two extremes. So I, I, I'm wondering if really what you could argue is that you start like meek and mild. This is her kind of frustrated, wanting to like move on, and then her fully realizing her potential uh, by the end of the show. This is me going like full like oh, English criticism <laughs> on please. this, but I, I wonder if that's more what they're trying to get after. I believe. So, because how Louise starts off in this section is she's really defending her mum here. She's, she's, you know, she says to June uh, in the libretto, you know, you can't blame everything on mama. And June's like, bitch, please. Um, <laughs> that's actually, uh, that's a full quote, actually. It says that specifically, yeah. Yeah, 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 I know, yeah. Um, they, like, Arthur Lawrence invented bitch, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think it's her love for June that's really coming through when she sees how much June has been hurt by this. Because, you know, what happens with, you know, a lot of people have experienced um, neglect or abuse or something is they will always trivialize their own experiences, right? You know, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Not as bad as other people. And in this moment, you know, when June sort of like opens up and says, you know what, this, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm over it. I'm tired. You know, all these emotions are coming out. And, you know, Louise is hearing about this for the first time. I think she's, this is the moment that gives her pause. And mm-hmm. I think sort of, you know, June sort of um, liberating herself from her mother, you know, by obviously running away and, you know, becoming June Hobbit, great actress. I think, if anything, that is putting the seeds in her head. And like, you know, this is possible. It is possible to get away from her mother. It is possible to be sort of her own person in a way. Right. 
But then again, she is very she is very very young, and she's very young. She's experienced this upbringing, which has been very 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 repressive. I mean, you know, because I, I remember, you know, when I when I first sort of saw it and I sort of got to see everything in the context, I was like, whoa. I mean. I read a really great book actually called American Rose by Karen Abbott, which sort of really, really goes into it. But, you know, how this, you know, mother-daughter's relationship is portrayed in the musical is nothing to how it was in life. I right. Mean, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, even in the musical, you know, we'll look at the musical as its own sort of little world. Louise doesn't even know how old she is. She's, True, got, yeah. no se- she's got no sense of life outside of vaudeville, outside of this world, like outside of the act, basically. I mean, like her mother's forced to dress like a boy her whole life, which – you know, I think she's kind of fine with, but then of course she has to be a cow, you know, like her mother, (laughs) everything her mother does is telling her that she's inferior to, you know, her big shiny sister, her little, like her little shiny sister. And Rose has purposely withheld her affection from Louise so she can give more to June. And, you know, this keeps happening. It's not until she realizes that June has been hurt, hurt by this, that I think she begins to realize that how wrong this is and how, you know, how flawed this relationship is and, like, what is going to need to happen to sort of change. But also I think a really lovely detail about this is uh, Louise makes all the clothes. You know, she makes all June's costumes. You know, Mm -hmm. she's a very talented seamstress in her own right. And I think it's the first time in the entire show that someone says to Louise, you know what, you're good at something. You know, know, uh, June has that really beautiful moment, you know, where she goes – you know, I'm sick of wearing these stupid costumes. And then she realizes that, you know, Louise made the costumes and she sort of has a bit of a moment. It goes, you know what? No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it about the costumes. And yeah, right. This is, I mean, and this is such stupendously good writing I mean, to me because this so first of all, even though Junior's so upset, she's still taking care of Louise's feelings in that moment. But she's also saying, you know, you have value. And I think Herbie has a lot to do with it as well because, you know, Herbie does a lot of sticking up for Louise in Act Two as well. And also, you know, you've got, you know, the three old broads who have been working in that strip club for about 100 years. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, who give her time and who give her energy. And, you know, of course, her realizing that she has something. She has something of offer, something to share. So I think it's like little bits of like self-esteem that keep popping up here and there. But of course, it's not a full journey because, you know, she's still going to have a really tough life after it. But, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think what really put this into perspective, I mean, f- first of all, I just am a big fan of like fiction and stories where even though mm. there can be uh, friction and, and and drama, that there's still that like care and the and affection within the family unit or within the friend unit. No, I absolutely. think this show does really well. It's like you know that they're frustrated with their mom, but they, you know, they still do like their mother, right? But I, I but I think what really changed my perspective a lot. I, I included a sound bite from because uh, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee or Louise who turns into Gypsy Rosalie, had her own morning talk show, who knew, uh, for yeah. a while in L.A. And, and she amazing, mentioned that. She, yeah. Yeah, like everyone, I guess, had their own talk show for a while in the <laughs> 70s. But she she invited on Ethel Merman to have that conversation about Gypsy. And I included some of that soundbite in a previous episode. Uh, but she says, like, I don't understand anyone who could watch this show and not think that I love my mother. Um, I, it's yeah, like, I know. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it just depends on, on your outlook. I think you can definitely only take a look at, say, like Rose's turn, like where the show ends and be like, oh, she was a monster, which I think she probably was and was also maybe uh, someone that they looked up to and, and admired. But uh, 
I think that people have multitudes. And so there's like the frightening and the great that can happen at the same time. Meeting your mother, but she must have been a fabulous person. Oh, it reminds me of this thing my sister said opening night. June went backstage with me uh, to uh, congratulate Ethel. Two of us were crying and all this. And June said, oh, Ethel, you were absolutely magnificent. You weren't mother, but you were magnificent. And Ethel said, well, after all, kid, I never met your mother. <laughs> I did the best I could. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, people um, have such different uh, pictures of their mother, and I, right, I never thought of my mother as being Ethel Merman until I got to know you better uh, during rehearsals. Really, it had nothing to do with the play. Well, I mean, she she was really a driver, as you know. I mean, but uh, there was so much she had so much heart, and whatever she did, she did for the girls. I mean, all out for she, them. They they were her life. I have such funny reactions from people. Some people will say. Uh, gee, you must have hated your mother, and I don't know where there could be one word in that script that would give a person that feeling, because I love my mother deeply. I don't know how anybody could say that, that they hate their mother. I get a lot of letters from people. Really? They say that I could never have written that book or that script if I had truly loved my mother, and I've always thought of it as sort of a monument to my mother. Of course, of course, which will live forever. No, exactly. I mean, it's what every child needs to realize, you know, at some point or other, is that your parents are human. And there is a whole sort of – there's a whole story there and there's this, all this stuff going on. I mean, you know, for all we sort of, you know, talk about, you know, Rose being a quote-unquote bad mother and, you know, she does things which are appalling, but she's very loving. Uh, she's very resilient. She's doing the best that she can under really impossible circumstances. Uh, but also she gives these girls the skills that they need to survive because, yeah. like, both of these women go on to be kind of a big deal. You know, yeah, no, um, absolutely. And, you know, I was reading in this book, you know, because also, you know, I'll talk about this more when we go into the lyrics. But when you listen to this song, I mean, like, these girls are so Rose's daughters. You can hear Rose and like the way, even though they're sort of like um, in sort of like emotional rebellion against her, like you can hear the similarities between them and Rose. Also, it was the depression. You know, she had very yeah. little resources and... And also Rose is dealing with her own trauma as well. I mean, I, I'll probably talk yeah. a little bit about intergenerational trauma when we get into the song. But like, yeah, I mean, I think we need to look at the whole person. And I think if we can believe what Gypsy had to say, and she was famously very sort of, you know, uh, flexible with, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what may have actually happened. You know, she got that from her mother, of course. Sure. But Sell a know, good story. Then, yeah. Exactly. But, you know, she's looking at a whole person. And I think it's really interesting that the show is called like a musical fable, because is that the message that we're supposed to take from this? That, you know, despite if you're going to love someone or if you're going to hate someone or if you're going to be dismissive of someone, you've got to see all of them. And it's mm -hmm. very, very hard to hate or dismiss someone when you see like all of them down to the bare bones. And I think, you know, we only even scratch the surface of Rose in this show, but I think what we get is pretty fucking spectacular. Well, let's jump into the lyrics. We don't need to belabor the point any longer. Uh, <laughs> I will say though, just to put a button on that a little bit, I vividly remember the day I, I was visiting my parents from university and that realization of like, oh, my parents are people kind of just mm -hmm. popped into my head. I'm like, whoa. And it kind of just, uh, 
messed up my worldview for a few days until I kind of just uh, made peace with it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing when, when you when you flip them like, oh, they're just my parents to be like, oh, they had hopes and dreams and, and a whole life before I came along. So, okay, so here's here's the lyrics. Uh, one thing I always like to do when we jump into these conversations, this song is primarily between Louise and June, the two sisters, and so I'm going to give credit to the people who've portrayed both of those characters, uh, June. In the original Broadway cast was played by Lane Bradbury. In the 2003 revival that was starred Bernadette Peters, June was played by Kate Reinders. And then in the 2008 revival that starred Patti Lapone, June was played by Leanne Larkin. And then for Louise, the original Broadway cast had Sandra Church. The 2003 revival was Tammy Blanchard. And then the 2008 revival was Laura Benanti, who I am a big fan of. She pops up a lot in musical theater even to this oh, day. Brilliant, brilliant. But and Louise won the Tony for Louise and she. Oh, you're putting me on the spot. That sounds oh. right. I can't remember. Herbie absolutely did. I know that, and I know that Patty absolutely did uh, oh, for yeah. this. So I just I don't remember if. Uh, if Laura did or not. I'm sure she's won, though. <laughs> and the American Theatre Wing's Tony Award goes to Laura Benanti Chipsa. Laura Benanti takes home her first Tony Award tonight. so quickly in my entire life i almost knocked the camera guy over um thank you so much because you saw the patty lapone performance didn't you i did i did yeah that's like the one i have seen yeah marvelous so louise is the one who starts and she sings if mama was married we'd live in a house as private as private can be just mama three ducks five canaries a mouse two monkeys one father six turtles and me if Mama was married. So the first question I'm going to throw at you is, um, and it could be that I'm just forgetting the lead up, but do you have any interpretations as to why she's envisioning there to be so many animals? Well, she loves animals. I mean, Louise, that's mm. a big part of her character, you know, in the show. I mean, you know, Little Lamb is, you know, filled with animal imagery. I sort of think also, I love that her, pri- I love what her priorities are. She's like, we're going to have a shitload of animals. Yeah, yeah, maybe a father and some more animals. That'd be great. I love that. Yeah, the Um, father's just a throwaway line. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. The father's always a throwaway line in this. Poor Herbie. Um, But also, I sort of think from a dramaturgical perspective, but also from a character perspective, I think Louise is trying to lighten the mood because they've just had this very heavy scene between, um, you know, her and June, where June has been, like, you know, really quite upset and she's, you know, let forth, like, all these resentments and all that. And I think this is Louise's life. I think she is the ultimate icebreaker because, you know, right. they, they sort of they sort of go into this song sort of having a bit of a giggle, like, oh, God, you know, if Mama was married, <laughs> third time lucky, yeah. am I right? But I think she's sort of, like, it's playful. It seems like a really private joke. And that's what I love about this song. It's, like, it's very, very sad, actually, when you really think about it. But it's also, like, playful. It's sort of, like... It's built on this very sisterly relationship. So I think she's trying to help June relax in a way and sort of get into this shared humor, this shared relationship. Yeah. Well, I I think it does say a lot here, too, because, I mean, Louise is saying she wants to be in a house as private as private can be, right? She 
she mm. doesn't want to be a public figure, at least not in this point in the show, right? She really is trying to reject that whole notion. She would much rather go off, live with all these animals, and just not have to worry about going up in front of people, which is, I think, contrasted which, with, with June, which is like, June is not really thinking about the alternative. She's just like, I just want this to end. I don't know what I mm. want it to end with. I just want it to end. Uh, where Louise has at least some sort of identification of what she wants that new future to be yeah absolutely and i and i think because she's never had it mm-hmm. she's sort of looking at it through this sort of very rose tinted <laughs> rose tinted glasses right. of just <laughs> this is something else this is something different and i honestly think if you know any of these women had like grown up in the suburbs like in just a house i think they would have hated it um sure <laughs> well june continues on she she responds to louise by saying if Mama was married, I'd jump in the air and give all my toe shoes to you. I'd get all those hair ribbons out of my hair, and once and for all, I'd get Mama out too. If Mama was married. If Mama was married, I'd jump in the air and give all my toe shoes to you. I'd get all those hair ribbons out of my hair, and once and for all, I'd get Mama out too. Uh, I do like that little turn of phrase. I think that that works really well as far as the rhyme goes, which is uh, uh, out of my hair and once and for all, I get mama out too. I think it just Mm -hmm. flows really nicely. Uh, Although this is the one part of the show where I know that the real June famously was a little bit upset with the show after it came out. Yeah. So I can kind of see this being part of the reason or one of the many reasons where she might get upset, especially when... Uh, I know that she cared about her mother or didn't want to be portrayed as someone who hated her family. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a very 1950s sort of simplistic way of looking at it because I don't get the sense that June hates her. Uh, No, yeah. I I just get the sense that June is a child who has had very little power and very little agency in her life, like needing to identify that there is something toxic in her life that she needs to escape, that she needs to escape from. But I, I, that's a very modern sort of, you know, um, interpretation because, you know, back in the 50s was very, you know, honor thy father, honor thy mother. They must know sure. what's best, all that kind of thing. What Louise kind of comes back with here, though, is mama, get out your white dress. You've done it before. And then June says without much success. Mm-hmm. Now, I do have this question. I mean, uh, something we have never or that we haven't talked about on this show here, at least. We have Rose and she has these two children. We can see through through these lyrics that she's probably tried to be married in the past, but it hasn't worked out. Is it ever mentioned, at least in the show, who the father or what that relationship was like at all? The only sort of inkling that we get uh, is in Rose's um, monologue uh, at the train station where she says, uh, she talks, where she sort of goes through the itinerary of people who've left her. Like we know that June and Louise have the same have the same father, because mm-hmm. um, she talks to her, she goes, "Your father left me, and the man I married after that left as well." So we, I think, we can sort of take that, you know. But also, yeah, we don't really know, right? Because uh, you know, she talks about hocking the wedding rings to sort of you know pay for sure. their uh, effort and all that. But yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, you know her dad, her father, you know, says to her so really early on the show, she goes, "You know, you just need to be married." Like. So it could be any number of things. I think it's up for the actresses to decide what the significance of those relationships were. I mean, I still get the impression that, like, Rose was very, very young when she Mm -hmm. had Louise and, you know, subsequently 
June and, you know, maybe she married this other guy for convenience, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Or, you know, maybe she did marry out of love or maybe like, you know, she did harbor hopes of like, you know, having some sort of like stability that marriage could bring because, you know, being a woman of that age, she doesn't really have that many options. Mama, get out your white dress. You've done it before without much success. Mama, Godspeed and God bless. We're not keeping score. What's one more or less? Yeah, I mean, it is a, it is still like a 1950s mentality here a little bit with uh, everything will just be okay if you just marry someone. Like that, that that's that's what uh, you're, you're, I don't know, leading up to. Or uh, if you're a woman in this time, like that is all you need to, to feel safe and protected in the world. I yeah, think this absolutely. is this is one of those things where it's like the, there's a fracturing of that mentality. It's like, no, like I, I don't feel great just being a married woman. Like I want something more for me and my kids. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, this is coming from, I'm making a wild stab in the dark. I think Julie Stein was gay, but you know, this is coming from free gay men, you know, who are like sort of on the fringes of society sort of going, yeah, this is, this is messed up. They are more well positioned than anyone to sort of see like yeah. how fundamentally flawed this system is this system is and you know 10 years later sexual revolutions coming and like people are i mean sondheim and arthur lawrence were definitely gay i but julie stein was married to a woman for most of his life but who knows oh, <laughs> i who don't knows? i yeah. don't i don't pretend to know uh anything about his personal life uh too much other than little snippets and stuff that i've that i've researched but um Oh, it doesn't matter, uh, really. So the song continues. So they both come together and say, Mama, God speed and God bless. We're not keeping score. What's one more or less? Which I which I feel is like a, a, an allusion to, to a man in, in her life specifically. It's like, you've had one before. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, pick somebody, mm-hmm. settle down, and then we don't have to continue on the circuit. And um, I sort of made a reference before about, you know, these two girls being so Rose's daughters, but... I find this tunnel vision that they have really interesting because, you know, June's like number one goal, you know, in the show is to be, is to make, you know, one or both of these girls the the biggest thing that's ever happened, mm-hmm. you know, it's Broadway. And if she does that, everything will be okay. Like she doesn't know what it's going to look like, but everything will be okay. And the same with these girls they are talking about like, you know, if you just marry anyone, if we just go and live in suburbia and like, you know, be a, you know, cookie cutter, white bread family everyone will be okay and obviously we know that's not true and i think especially given the life they've led this would have been awful but yeah. also what i find really interesting about that is it's a small 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 thing it's barely even worth mentioning but i feel like the song could have been made even stronger if they'd actually singled something out something out about herbie specifically because herbie is different and right. like and because and i feel like they're a little bit dismissive of herbie like you know what's one you can marry anyone but like herbie at this point in the show and certainly later does prove himself to be sort of you know exceptional you know in his love and his care and his nurture of these three women so mm-hmm. uh, I know it's just a tiny, tiny little thing, and it's probably just one of those things that no one even thought of. But yeah, it's just it's just something that springs to mind. So I'm like going, if she, if Rose was going to be with anyone long term, it would be Herbie, because you know um, he's you know he's gentle, he adores her, you know he loves her kids, you know, and he gives the kids his time and emotional energy and all that. So who will speak for Herbie? I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a Herbie defender, and I, I found myself doing this. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, all right. The next bit is a little bit of a longer section here, but. They both say, oh, mama, say yes, and waltz down the aisle while you may. 
Louise says, I'll gladly support you. I'll even escort you. And then June says, and I'll gladly give you away. And then they both come together and say, oh, mama, get married today. Uh, and then they launch into this kind of a redo of uh, May We Entertain You. Because June says, if mama was married, there wouldn't be any more. Let me entertain you. Let me make you smile. I will do some kicks. And she has a little kick. Uh, Louise, like, I will do some tricks. Uh, and then June says, sing out, Louise. And then Louise like, smile, baby. If mama was married, there wouldn't be any more. Let me entertain you. Let me make you smile. I will do some kicks. I will do some tricks. Sing out, Louise. So what do you make of this like uh, section here? Of course, it's a callback to stuff that we've already been seeing on stage. But there's almost like this mocking nature that they now have to this act that they've been doing forever. Honestly, fair enough, because I'm, I'm just trying to think about, you know, what are we like for them mentally? I mean, you know, even as someone who I know when I'm at, when I'm at the end of, end of a run of a show of doing the same thing over and over for, you know, a couple of weeks, it does start to fuck with my head. And I keep thinking about them <laughs> doing the same act over and over again for I think it's 10 years at this point of doing pretty much the same material. I mean, even when they, even when they change it up a little bit, it's still the same. So, and, but also, you know, these, both these, cause you know, something I was reading about today was apparently Rose had three different copies of their birth certificates. So they never knew how old they were. Well, okay. Yeah. Intense. And I think this is really interesting about this. It's more, it's more about it. If we don't laugh and we don't mock this, we're going to fall down crying. Because mm-hmm. I think they're just both in this headspace of like, whoa, this is this is really not right. But I think you know, I, I think when you laugh laugh about something, you almost take away their power, and like, you know, they're taking away Rose's power, like by doing this, you know, by mm-hmm. sort of like bringing her down a notch, and like that is something that Rose, like if Rose were to ever relinquish control, she would like fall down in pieces, you know, and. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of what this reminds me of, I mean, it doesn't really go too much into this category in this song. Being a fan of stand-up comedy, there is, uh, what I've heard constantly is like, you get a, a, a like a, a room full of uh, comedians together and you'll hear like the most depressing, like awful mm. things because it's, that's the way that they blow off steam uh, is, is what they do. And this feels like two people that have, you know, been in the trenches and have done this for a decade. It's like, we just need to blow off some steam in our off time or else we're going to go legitimately crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I can almost see Stephen Sondheim, you know, having drinks with the crew afterwards, like doing impressions of his mother. Cause you know, as you know, he's divulged yeah. that, you know, his mother was abusive and you know, he's told stories about her. And I think, you know, this devastating story that you should send him a letter saying, you know, my big regret in life is giving he's birth having to you. you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you tell a story, when you sort of give words to these sort of things, it becomes yours, becomes real. And that's sort of what I encourage in my work as well. I'm like, because I use a lot of humor in my work as well. So, you know, sometimes I will even encourage people to laugh at the things that hurt you most to sort of, you know, but also it changes perspective. And I think that's what's, and I think this is a really important moment for both these, for both these girls because I think it shows that they're going to be okay. Uh, I was mentioning this with a, a previous guest, Karen Unland. Famously, Sondheim really hates it when people try and 
bring in his own autobiography into the work that he's done. He doesn't feel like he writes about his own life experiences. But I don't know. Like, you, you take a look at his own relationship with his mother and how fraught that was. And you take a look at this show early in his career. And it's essentially a story about a character that has an uh, has a mother uh, that might be overbearing and maybe look to it being as almost grotesque. And they stand up and be like, "No, like I'm going to take my own my own career into my own hands, and I don't need you in my life." And I I just wonder if there's something that you can bring into that uh, from his own background that he he really understood Louise. And was trying to understand Rose. Well, my interpretation of like sometimes comments around that, I agree with him. I don't think that he writes autobiographically, but I think Stephen Sondheim is an extraordinarily emotionally intelligent man. So he is someone I feel, I, I believe personally, this is my own interpretation of like his entire catalog of work is that he's not so much writing from his own experience, but he's writing from the emotion. He's like he knows what this feeling is, and of course, like none of us can help this. You know, we are all the products of like you know everything that has ever happened to us, you know, it shapes our worldviews in, you know, incredible ways. That's why we, why so few of us can actually get along with each other because, you know, we're all sort of, you know, bringing all these different interpretations to it. But I think mine is that he's taking what, taking something from his gut and he's certainly got the experience. I think it's why he can write so profoundly about it, but I think he's able to separate himself enough because, you know, and I've experienced this myself. I mean, you know, when you sort of write purely from yourself it generally doesn't make good theater because you don't have that separation enough and because it's so so personal uh but also on the other side i don't know what arthur lawrence's background Mm, was but you know he's writing about the exact same thing And i have to say like these two men it's such a shame they didn't work together more because like their chemistry as writers is just sublime i mean Mm -hmm. you know obviously west side story is great as well but you know this is where like they are so in sync with each other, the emotional trajectory of this show. But yeah, that's just my little opinion. I mean, I, I suppose like the only one who can really give us uh, an opinion on this is Sondheim himself, and I think he kind of has. Well, Louise continues on saying, Mama, please take our advice. We aren't the Lunts. And June says, I'm not Fanny Bryce. Do you know who the Lunts are, first of all? I do. I do. Um, I'm fascinated by the Lunts. Uh, oh, really? Okay, good. I am. I'm, look, again, this this era of like American entertainment, um, I'm so, so interested in. I mean, um, it's why I sort of love Follies as uh, as much mm-hmm. as I do, because it's sort of like, you know, this whole exploration of that era. But yeah, I mean, um, from my understanding, you know, Alfred and Lund Fontaine, you know, they were the, the theatre's it couple. The Antoinette Perry Tony Award is the most coveted reward that an actor can receive. And now, really because it comes from your own people and to be thought well of by your own people is a very pleasant thing. And now, Mr. Lamp will talk some more on the same subject. I have always felt it a great privilege to be in the theatre, and I am so grateful to the playwrights who have made it possible for me to remain in the theatre for so long. It's a terrifying business, but it has its compensations. Where, for instance, but in the theatre, could you meet such beguiling creatures as these two adorable people? 
<laughs> and where could you learn about your own country so thoroughly as you can through a tour arranged by the theater, towns you never thought of visiting yourself? <laughs> You know, uh, they sort of did a lot of work together. They uh, had a very famous friendship. I sort of know about them through Noel Coward. I mean, I'm a really huge fan of Noel Coward. I've done a lot of reading about him. Uh, And they were, you know, great friends, and they worked together once on Signs for Living. Um, So, and, but the thing was, people never went to see the play. They went to see the Lunts in the play. So, um, yeah, and this never really happens anymore that I've found. Like, we don't really see that many sort of, you know, theatrical power couples sort of like doing everything together in a way. Um, I think we need this generation's lunch. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have like those quote unquote power couples in Broadway, but you, yeah, they don't really perform together. They're, they're performing in separate things. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So Alfred Lunt, uh, we're talking like, well, he was born in the late 1800s, but was really came to the fore in like the 30s, 40s, 50s, that sort of time. But yeah, you're right. It was the people that people wanted to come and see. There's actually a theater named after him in New York City uh, currently, which is the uh, Luntfontaine Theater that's in in New York. And there's still productions that happen to this day. I believe the last one is, according to my notes that I've written down here, the last one was Summer, the Donna Donna Summer Musical was the last thing uh, that was playing there. But it's had things like a lot of the Disney stuff is premiered there. So Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, both premiered there. Titanic, the musical Titanic was there. So there's been a bunch of different... Uh, high-profile shows that have opened out of the that theater itself. Yeah, it's amazing. And if we could like make a ever so, so I, I won't go in, go into this in like too much detail. But like when people get you know really snobby about um, musical theater, uh, you know, going oh my god, you know how dare they do a jukebox musical, or, you know, or Disney sure. or whatever. I generally refer back to vaudeville and, you know, especially this era era of musical theater because you know uh, I forget I forget what I was what I was watching, but it was a very, very fluffy show. And I thought it was delightful. And I, I just kept thinking, and, I, and I, I turned to my friends who sort of knew what I was, I said, Ziegfeld would have adored this. You know, this is 100% <laughs> the kind of thing that he would have wanted to get his hands on. And, you know, I think it sort of goes back, especially them being the Lunt Fontaine fitter. I mean, of course they sort of have, now have this mystique and all that, but those two were not above doing the lightest of light comedies. You know, obviously mm-hmm. they did like brilliant immortal comedies and dramas and all that. And, but, yeah, I mean, there is a history there. It's not just like, you know, when people talk about, you know, the theatre dying and all that and the theatre being cheap. And I'm like, well, honey, this, is, this has been like this forever. And mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, that, that I have a – no, like I could go on a huge tangent. I, I, I really dislike the people who try and separate what they call high and low art from one another. Yeah. It's a – it's a big thing of mine. I won't go into that right now, but uh, I oh, think yeah. it's I dumb mean, to try and separate them. Necessarily respond to certain things, you know, but that's just me and like down to the storytelling that I sort of, you know, enjoy or respond to. And like I, I think part of being a good like consumer of art or a good you know, audience member is sort of being open, you know, it's just being open to it. Sure. Um, and then again, I mean, like I remember having sort of a bit of a terse argument about someone who hates Sondheim, and I sort of went. 
okay, okay. Sometimes I'm doing it for you right now. Um, don't say he's bad though. He's anything but. But yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you politely to leave. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a person who does musical theatre, but has I, I, I should just say they do musical theatre, but their knowledge of music and lyrics is developing. Um, gotcha. As yeah. such, because you know he said that all sometimes songs sound the same, and I, and I sort of went, well, okay, let's have a discussion about this, please. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, please describe to me how Sweeney Todd sounds anything like West Side Story. Precisely, precisely. Well, then again, different, different composer, but yeah, uh, precisely. I mean, and yeah, I, I, I think I just sort of went, okay, we'll come to my place. We'll go to my library, and I've got both, both his collected lyrics, and we're going to look through this and like, talk, and you're going to read about how he talks about music. So, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, I just want to uh, also talk very briefly. I feel that as uh, music theater fans, we take this for granted. But just in case someone is listening and doesn't know, you know who Fanny Bryce is? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Love Fanny Bryce. I was listening to Fanny Bryce today, actually. Um, oh, nice. Fanny Bryce, of course, is very famous, uh, again, in the early 1900s in films as well as on the stage. People will probably be the most familiar with a show called Funny Girl, which starred Barbara Streisand, which actually eventually she well, she started in the original Broadway show. And then in the movie she started in, which she won an Oscar for, uh, Barbara did. And Julie Stein wrote the music. Yes, he did. And actually, very interestingly, Julie Stein also discovered Barbara Streisand which mm. I think is like a really neat story. He was going around one night and just went randomly walked into a club and it was Barbara Streisand performing that night back when she was a nobody. And he's like, you have to be Fanny Bryce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he brought her in and he basically brought her in, uh, which I think is kind of an interesting little story, which again, probably doesn't ever happen anymore like that. Yeah. Well, um, how many divas get their start performing in gay clubs anymore? Um <laughs> But also, I find that so interesting because as brilliant an interpreter as like Barbara was, she sounds nothing like Fanny Bryce. Here I am, there you'll be, miles and miles away from me. I can't see the good and goodbye. Still, best of friends have to part. Don't lose sleep and don't lose heart. You know me. Oh, baby, don't cry. I'd rather be... Oh, no. You know, yeah, you're right. Their performance styles are completely different, and I love it. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's, you know, you know, they're creating an idea, a mystique around, like, very real people. It's the same with this show, actually, because you can't... Because, you know, it's called Gypsy, a musical fable. I mean, you can't really go into it and sort of say, you know, uh, they must be... Um, you know, they must honor exactly who all these people were. I mean, you know, I remember um, Leslie Uggams was cast as Rose, you know, at some point, and there was a huge fuss made because she's, she was African-American, which Leslie Uggams is amazing. Like, you would be lucky to see her interpret this material. Well, let's finish off uh, the, the song here. So they, they both come together and say, Mama, will buy you the rice if only this once. You wouldn't think twice. It would be so nice if Mama got married today. And then Louise says, but Mama gets married. June says, and Louise says, married. And then June says, and, and then Louise says, married. So, of course, they're kind of going on like married multiple times. And then both come together saying, and never gets carried away. Oh, mama, get married today. So that's how that's Beautiful. how the the song the song ends. Um, I guess uh, to 
as we go into the final stretch here, uh, I'd love to see or hear your overall uh, impressions of the song itself. Well, I think I've, you know, I've, I've talked about it like quite a lot, actually. I mean, I don't know. There's something about this particular ending to this song where I just break out into a big silly grin. For example, I do appreciate the pun of and mama never gets carried away because I, I sort of right. see a dual meaning in that. Firstly, you know, Rose never gets carried away, even though she's in there screaming at this theater producer who wants to, um, you know, <laughs> sign June on. But also she never gets carried away. So she um, I sort of took that to mean like she never gets carried over the threshold, you know, as right, a right. new look well, she's anything but a blushing bride and all that, all that stuff. Yeah, I, I suppose this all comes down to I think this is a great song. I think it's really economical. I think it fits so much plot and character development in this is barely a two minute song where it comes in the show the audience is already prepared for the fact that they are going to be watching something different you know where the, the audience is prepared for the fact that they need to think deeply about about character and about sort of you know what is going on uh beneath what these characters are saying and what these characters are doing and not that you know shows like this didn't, didn't exist you know um you know in the 50s i absolutely did but I think there was a common misconception that you didn't have to think too deeply when you went to a musical. And what's so great about this song is that, you know, it sounds like typical sort of, you know, uh, Broadway fair. I mean, like, I, I think someone described it as a silly song. I'm like, well, for me, it's not silly. I mean, I think it's a perfect encapsulation of, like, where these two young women are in their life. But, you know, if you took it out of context, you would just hear, like, you know, two two girls having a laugh together. But, you know... When you listen to it, like in the context of this show, you hear, like, first of all, you're building a connection out of something that you haven't really gotten the chance to see before. And, but also, it's setting things up beautifully, beautifully for what is going to happen for the rest of the show. Like, mm-hmm. June is going to leave, Louise is going to take her place, and they are both going to have a reckoning, you know, with this woman who has, like, dictated, like, every movement in their lives. And I think that is, like, that, that excites me, you know. And it's sort of all whenever both times I've seen Gypsy, this is the moment where I sit up and go, yep, I'm 100% invested in this story and I want to see sort of where it goes. I think, too, that this is uh, after having now done a a fairly close reading of of Gypsy and of West Side Story, like this early in in Sondheim's career, uh, as much as I like West Side Story, the, the Gypsy, what I'm so amazed by is like how each song is essentially either foreshadowing or really tied Mm. to character incredibly well so that it informs what's going to happen later on in the show like you can really start to see the formation of of Sondheim as this artist being like no like I write for characters so if the character would sing it this way like it would make sense for them to say it this way um I I can't just force a rhyme or or force them Mm. to, to get to a certain dramatic beat if it's not germane to what the character would actually do uh and I feel like that's the same in, in the song too where it's uh, two sisters kind of uh, getting together uh, imagining a different future and and just trying mm. to you know lessen lessen the load a little bit i think you know you're absolutely right i mean if you look at sort of compare this to west side story is i think julie stein um who's a very very different composer to leonard bernstein mm-hmm. i think julie stein given that like um he wrote very very much for and i think exclusively for the theater I think he would have given Sondheim a little bit more space to actually sort of work in this way because I, I think um, it was discussed in like you know the, your past season. There is 
there's just that ever so slight dissonance in West Side Story between the music and the lyrics. I agree. Um, yeah. Not that it doesn't work beautifully, 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 but you're absolutely right. I mean, some of some of the compositions were written prior to West Side Story and quite possibly, you know, out of context. I mean, I think several several sections were written for different shows and, you know, they were brought in and, you know, Bernstein, you know, had very specific ideas about what he wanted from that from those lyrics and also you know sometimes growing well as we as we wrap up here i guess is there any last thoughts that you have about the song or the show or or the characters i swear one okay one very very small thing it's often my favorite moment in the entire show and it Mm. always gets a laugh i just love it when the actress who's playing june gets to stop being dainty june and her voice just goes down a couple of octaves oh yes yes and um (laughs) Uh, for people who are into the YouTube, Leanne Sales, who did it in the Pedal Opponent version, is absolutely phenomenal. Like, her voice and her mannerisms are just amazing. Yeah, I, I, I love June. I think June is a really underrated role in the musical theatre canon. And, you know, given the right actress, you can really have a lot of fun with it. So, yeah. um, moral of the story, do not dismiss those really juicy supporting roles because, you know, you will get your moment and it'll be fabulous and people will love you. That's right. You need to, th- those those characters need to be there so that the rest of the show can work as well as it does. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Darby, thank you so much for joining me here today <laughs> to to pull the curtain back a little bit for people that are listening. It was, uh, it was a very interesting way that uh, we eventually got together here. It was uh, <laughs> trying to work this with our with our two schedules. So I'm glad that you were able to make the time. Thank you. My pitch to you then is this. If people were interested in seeing what you were up to or staying in contact with you somehow online, is there a way to do so? No, not right now. Um, <laughs> That's fair I'm, enough. Yeah, fair enough. No, uh, because uh, I'm... I am building up a body of work right now, uh, and I probably will develop some kind of social media presence for my creative work. But no, as it stands now, I don't really have um, a place uh, sort of for that. But um, if I'm ever lucky enough to uh, be on the show again, I may have a different answer for you. Um, That's great. Yeah, in development. That's great. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. Thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, to ATB, and to Let's Do Coffee this week. Next time, we're going to be talking about All I Need is the Girl, so get your tweed pressed in preparation for that. If you have additional feedback, comments, questions, or a great guest idea, please send that to puttingittogetherpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Terrence for being one of our Playbill-level patrons. Also, a big thanks to the always great Chris Taniguchi, who designed the podcast artwork, and to Nick Driscoll for composing our theme music. For now, we've reached the end of our episode. Yes, I know. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.